Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. First off, I'd like to express to you how pleased I am at how well received the first podcast in this series was. There were some very positive comments left on the Mormon Discussions podcast website underneath the post where um, Bill um, posted my uh, the, the, the last podcast I did last month. Uh, and I really appreciate your kind comments. Uh, one of the things that I felt particularly good about was that both people who were going through a faith crisis and those who are trying to help others who are going through a faith crisis found that the first episode in this series on Stage 4 Mormons was helpful and encouraging. Honestly, I've seen some people who are going through a faith crisis write some really mean and nasty stuff online, and I was bracing myself for that. Uh, you know, I, I try not to have any illusions about the work I'm doing here with Bill Real. I, uh, I realize that not everyone is going to necessarily like everything I put out here at Mormon Discussions, but uh, to hear that some of you have found what I prepared useful is, uh, is, is very encouraging. Uh, the, that's really the goal, folks, to help alleviate the pain of transitioning from stage just three to stage four, much of which is unnecessary. Much of that pain is unnecessary. So the idea that this podcast series can go out there and have a ripple effect is, is really wonderful. Uh, no matter how you look at it, when it's happening, when it's going on, a faith crisis is a problem, a serious, gut-wrenching problem. And everybody at Mormon Discussions wants to help with that as much as we can. If you haven't listened to the first podcast in this series on Stage 4 Mormons, I strongly recommend that you go back and give it a listen. For those of you who have already listened to it, and uh, for those of you who haven't but just feel like listening to this podcast right now, let me give you a quick, re a, a quick recap. Uh, the Stages of Faith... I talk about in this series refer to research performed by Dr. James Fowler, a developmental psychologist and theologian who works at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. After conducting his research, he found that faith develops in a series of six stages. We go through stage one when we're really very little. It mainly consists of recognizing the important names, symbols, ideas, etc. that are associated with a, the belief system that surrounds us. We also go through stage two in childhood. Uh, that's when we start learning the stories and motivations behind these people, places, ideas, and symbols that are important to our belief system. The stories give uh, context to all the ideas and symbols and people, and they help us connect the dots see how they're related. According to Dr. Fowler's research, some people stay in stage two indefinitely, but most everyone develops into stage three. We generally start stage three sometime in adolescence. It's when we begin asserting ourselves in our belief systems. In a nutshell, we start the process of choosing what kind of a believer we're going to be. When it comes to political belief, we start 
deciding, we start to decide just how hardcore of a liberal or conservative or libertarian or whatever we're going to be. Are we going to go to political rallies? Are we going to donate money to political causes? Or are we just going to be armchair activists? I mean, what? We really start to decide on those things in stage three. When it comes to religious belief, we start really deciding what kind of religious believers we're going to be. Are we going to go to church every Sunday or just sometimes? How Just how devout in our religious lives are we going to be now that we're becoming adults and no one can really force us to behave one way or the other? Uh, most adults you come into contact with are stage three believers and will be for the rest of their lives. Their identities as human beings, as individuals, and their beliefs are completely intertwined. Because of this, their minds will very easily go into denial to protect their identities and psychological self-projections. Stage 3 believers are not really interested in listening to or deeply considering the arguments of people or organizations that challenge their beliefs. You have to understand that their beliefs govern how they regard themselves and their relationship to the rest of the world, particularly to the people closest to them in their lives. And they're not interested in changing any, any of that. Not in a major way, anyhow. Fowler's first three stages of faith are characterized by a person's place in a community of believers or in a community of people who share the same values. What they believe is largely or entirely determined by the group. Stages four through six are characterized by a much more personal and independent faith. Going along with the crowd it just doesn't cut it anymore. Uh, the instinct to ignore anything that might threaten a person's beliefs is somehow switched off, and the believer can consider ideas that are not encouraged by his or her community of faith. And again, by community of faith, I'm not just talking about churches. I'm talking about all groups that share an ideology. So in stages four through six, the impetus for belief is driven by the individual and no longer by the group, although it can be affected by a group. Uh, this leads us to stage four. It's in stage four that we first turn off that protective instinct that keeps us from questioning our systems of belief too much, and we begin to see contradictions and limitations that exist in our simple belief and in our worldview and even cosmological view. During our transition into stage four, it's not unusual to feel a certain amount of disconnection between us and our traditional faith community. After all, it's a bit like learning a more advanced kind of math. Uh, you may have once believed that math was just for numbers, and letters were just for reading and writing. Uh, then you learn that math can indeed include numbers, and that the letter X, for example, can represent an infinite amount of numbers. And then you learn about imaginary numbers. Explaining imaginary numbers to people who have only ever learned simple addition and subtraction may not be very well received. I'd like to quickly point out that a faith crisis and a transition into stage four are not necessarily the same thing. There are people who simply go from being a Catholic stage three believer to an evangelical stage three believer. Uh, some people go from being a religious stage believer to an atheist stage, I'm sorry, a religious stage three believer to an atheist stage three believer. All they're doing is switching which community they associate with. This is one reason why there are people who go from complaining about how much time their callings take up as active Latter-day Saints, and then they turn around, leave the church, watch six hours of general conference, and participate in anti-Mormon forums for the next week talking about how wrong the Mormon leadership is. And they didn't save any time there. What's happened is they've switched from one belief system to another. Uh, they've switched from one group of believers 
and they've replaced them with another group of believers, uh, people who have a different ideology. What the person believes changes, but his or her stage of belief is still right there in stage three. Hasn't changed. Uh, we can be devout Latter-day Saints or devout ex-Mormons, atheists, whatever, and be in stage four. What separates stage three from stage four is not so much a person's level of devotion or a crisis or even the beliefs themselves. What separates the two is how independent a person is in, or can be in his or her belief. Does the person choose belief individually or does the person simply choose to find a different group to tell him or her what to believe? Stage four believers don't need a church, a club, or a community. They very well may participate in a church, club, or community, but it's not out of peer pressure. It's because they, as independent, self-determining believers, decide that they want to participate. This is why stage four believers sometimes have a hard time. Stage three can be a very happy, comfortable place to be. People get used to the support and validation that comes with believing everything that everyone else in the group believes exactly the same way that everyone else in the group believes it. There's safety, a security that goes along with belonging to a group in that way. According to Dr. Fowler's research, people in stage three have a particularly hard time transitioning into stage four if they make the tra transition after their mid-twenties. And this observation is consistent with my own personal observations. As I've become more and more aware of the growing number of Mormons who are giving voice to some pretty serious doubts, pretty sincere doubts, I've noticed that a lot of them are in their early 30s to late 40s, which would suggest that there are people going through it in their 20s, their early 20s anyway, and uh, they just don't experience the same level of angst and anxiety, you know. So having a, uh, a crisis of faith is like opening a Pandora's box. There's no going back. You can't ignore it. You can't put the lid back on. And trying to ignore it is just going to wear you down. Uh, it's going to fill you with cognitive dissonance until you finally resolve your beliefs one way or the other. So here are a few ways people resolve that co cognitive dissonance. Uh, they stay in stage three, but they switch teams. We've talked about this. They find another community that feels the way they do, that espouses their new beliefs. Uh, for some people, that means going to another church, but I've seen many others form atheist communities of ex-believers who define themselves by who they are not and what they don't believe. Again, that's still staying in stage three. They're, that's still seeking out validation and support from others to help vindicate your beliefs. Um, another alternative is to develop the independence needed to transition into stage four, and but to disassociate yourself with any group at all. And that's what some people do. Uh, they can't stand being around people in another stage of belief, uh, whether it's lower, three, two, one, or whether it's higher, five or six, although those people are pretty rare. Uh, so they just avoid those those people, or they avoid joining groups that are ideal, ideologically based, faith based, belief based. In fact, uh, they don't even really much care for people in their own stage because people in their own stage, stage four, believe differently than they do. In this, in a spirit of full disclosure, I have to say that I really don't find this option appealing. But I have to admit that it's it's an actual transition into a new stage of faith. A person who takes responsibility for his or her beliefs. You know, doesn't just say, well, this is what they taught me. Uh, a person who takes that kind of responsibility and then chooses to be disassociated with, uh, with believers has transitioned into stage four. Um, the next alternative that I'd like to mention here is to transition into stage four while developing the necessary independence to continue to associate, but to continue to uh, associate ourselves with people in any other stage. And this decision takes patience, it takes effort, but I find it much more appealing than the first two options. 
To some people, this might sound naive or impossible to be able to have this independent belief but still associate with other believers who uh, don't think so independently. But it's been done before. And if other people have done it, then why not you and me? Today's podcast is the first step in exploring the last option I mentioned, transitioning into a healthy stage four believer who can associate with people in other stages of belief, particularly stage three, since those are the other adults you're going to be around. Uh, Since you're listening to a podcast that has the tagline, Leading with Faith, I'm going to assume that this is an appealing idea to you. So the first step in getting over your faith crisis and developing an an independent and self-determined faith is to acknowledge just how serious and life-altering an experience this is. I know that might sound really obvious to many of you, but this is where I've seen a lot of people go wrong right from the beginning. They try to grit their teeth and white-knuckle their way through it. As I said in my last podcast, so far, this appears to be a very first-world problem. And I don't say that to diminish anyone or, or, or the pain they're feeling. I say that because that's what the data shows. A few years ago, Mormon Stories founder John DeLynn did a big online survey, thousands of participants, and it was a big online survey of disaffected Mormons. Most of his respondents were white, well-educated, and upper-middle class. Now, his study has a few issues, which he himself has publicly recognized, but I I still think that the data he collected can be very useful. So, what do we know about most well-educated, upper-middle-class, 21st-century white people? We know that a lot of them have got to where they are in life by working hard and by trying to be very smart. They are smart. They they took hard classes in school. They played sports competitively. These are ambitious, hardworking people who know how to push through pain and make things happen. They often stayed up late uh, at night studying as students, and they often stay up late at night working as adults. This kind of ambition frequently leads us to neglect ourselves. We don't exercise. We eat a lot of unhealthy food because it's easy to prepare, or we just buy fast food because that saves us even more time. Because we're stressed out by our high-pressure jobs, because we don't eat well, because we don't exercise, we end up not sleeping well either. My friends, a faith crisis will change the way a person lives the rest of his or her life. It's an emotionally exhausting and spiritually haunting experience. It's a crisis and should be treated as such. If you're going to get through it with your dignity in a way that you can be proud of years later, You need to set yourself up for success and treat it like a real crisis. The physical, emotional, spiritual, and intellectual aspects of human beings are conceived separately, yet we know that they're all interconnected. By helping one aspect, we help all the others indirectly. By hurting one aspect, we hurt all the others indirectly. So do you want to be in a better place to handle this spiritual crisis? Take better care of yourself. Start with your body. Get out there. Exercise. Uh, I suggest exercising in a way that helps clear your mind. If at all possible, get out into nature. Take a walk. Take a jog. Take a bike ride in the mountains, in the countryside, through a park. Exercise vigorously enough to get your heart rate up. But let that be your only goal. If exercise turns into just another big project for you to excel at, another mountain for you to climb, another box for you to check off, then you're not going to achieve the objective I'm trying to help you achieve. Just get out there and get moving on a regular basis. 
preferably in a place that isn't distracting. This kind of exercise will soothe the aches and pains that come from transitioning into a stage of faith that's different than the ones most of your loved ones are in. Secondly, stop filling your body with so much junk. Eat more raw fruits and vegetables. Replace more of your sugary drinks with just water. (laughs) I'm not telling you never to eat a hamburger or never to enjoy a piece of cake. I'm just saying that you should probably eat fewer hamburgers and, and enjoy smaller pieces of cake with less frequency. Obesity is a growing problem in every developed nation on earth, from the USA to the UAE, from Austria to Australia. Make sure that you're not take, that, make sure that you're not taking in two to three times more calories a day than your body needs. Just as you shouldn't worry about being overly ambitious about exercising, just doing it regularly, don't get overly ambitious about changing the way you eat. Uh, don't set any goals to fit into an old pair of pants, for example. I'm talking about just getting your BMI, your, bo- your body mass index, into a healthy range. This isn't about vanity. This is about health. And if you're in that group that's, you know, you're not eating enough, um, or you're eating the right, you said your caloric intake is correct for your body, but it's a lousy stuff. You know, that's, um, that's not good either. So if there are some other nice side effects to eating right and getting your proportions right, uh, like fitting into an old pair of pants, well, that's great. But the point is just to get healthy, to feel healthy, to be healthy. And I want to pause really quickly and thank you for not turning off the podcast I realize that this is probably not something you were expecting some of you don't want to hear it and uh, you know for most of you this probably isn't any big news there's a chance that a few of you are already doing these things you know you're eating right you're exercising that's great and if you are I want to congratulate you I promise that by the end of this podcast though there will be at least a few pieces of advice that are really going to help you out so sit tight The next thing I want to talk about is your stress level. Do you hate your job? According to a fairly recent study by Gallup, about 30% of Americans hate their jobs. Do you spend a significant amount of time doing something you hate? That's not really helping you deal with your faith crisis. That's not helping your ability to deal with anything, really, except maybe pay the mortgage. But there are other options. There are other ways for you to pay the mortgage that don't require that you hate life. Finding ways to take joy uh, in your day-to-day life is huge. You might not need to switch your jobs or professions. That might not be necessary. I've met people who don't have the most fulfilling jobs who manage to find lots of joy in life. Uh, You might simply try telling more jokes to loved ones, whistling while you work, singing out loud at the top of your lungs as you commute to work, uh, or just making the effort to smile more often. Carve out a brief time in your day to meditate. There are actually quite a few scriptures that highlight the importance of meditation, but I wonder if our Western biases keep us from really noticing the importance of meditation. Just sit there, breathe deeply, and try to let your mind wander, or better yet, go blank. If you haven't yet listened to Bill's podcast series on N.T. White, N.T. Wright, excuse me, I highly suggest you do so. In one of the lectures, N.T. Wright talks about the symbolism of the cross and our relationship to God in a very beautiful way. And I remember feeling the Spirit very strongly 
while doing some menial task and listening to this really great lecture on my MP3 player. The people who were actually attending the lecture must have felt some something very similar, the, the same strong spirit as I did. And N.T. Wright notices this and says, let's just be still a moment. And then he paused. This pause gave me space. It gave me room to really reflect on what I was feeling and why. That stillness was powerful. And it ended up really adding to my experience listening to this lecture. There's real strength that comes from being still for a few minutes every day. Everything I've mentioned so far, you can pretty much do on your own. Uh, The next suggestion I'm going to make requires help from someone else, though. It may seem strange that I'm telling you to get help so you can be more independent, but uh, just hear me out. When we go through physical therapy, we need a physical therapist, don't we? I get into a car accident, I walk with a limp afterwards, and, you know, there's a good chance the physical therapist can work me through certain exercises that will allow me to walk without a limp anymore. If I don't work with the therapist, if I just try to quote-unquote deal with it on my own, I'll continue to walk with a limp for the rest of my life. It, It won't get better on its own. Uh, just my my ability to ignore the pain might increase a little bit, you know. A faith crisis works like that, folks. If we get the help we need, it doesn't need to hurt for the rest of our lives. But if we don't, it very well may. Now, the object of working with a physical therapist is not to rely on him or her forever. In fact, isn't it the physical therapist's job to make sure you don't need his or her services anymore? That's the kind of help I'm going to suggest next temporary help that will facilitate your ability to be more independent. While you're going through this time of faith crisis, you need someone with first-class listening skills. One of the main things that makes this faith crisis so hard is the feeling that you have to keep it a secret. Being able to voice those doubts in a safe environment will do wonders for your quality of life. Again, I'm not talking about just any person who can sit there and be quiet and call that listening. Uh, your Your listener needs three things. The first thing the listener needs is your trust. You need to be able to trust that this person will not betray your confidence. You need to trust that if this person says, oh yeah, I'm not going to repeat anything you say to anyone else, then that's the way it's going to be. You don't have any second thoughts. You don't question it. You need to know that you can say anything to this person without worrying about someone else finding out. The second thing you need from this listener is to avoid passing a condemning sentence. What I mean by this is you should be able to talk and talk and talk without the listener interrupting and without the listener making you feel judged. It's very common for a person who is going through a faith crisis to say something very emotionally charged, pause, realize how exaggerated and harsh that was, and then restate his or her feelings. Saying outlandish or exaggerated things and then restating them is generally a very necessary part of the process. It won't work unless the speaker feels like he or she is allowed to say anything without the listener interrupting. The listener needs to be patient and let you speak your piece without jumping in. This has to be someone who is willing to accept that you are where you are and you feel what you feel, and that might all change tomorrow, or it might not, but for right now, the person is just willing to sit back and listen attentively. The third thing you need from a listener is to let you explore all sides of your problem. What I mean by that is if the listener just agrees with everything you say right away, you won't actually get the help you need. A crisis of faith is a time of inner conflict. And that means we don't know exactly how we feel about something that is important to us. If I don't know exactly how I feel about something in the world, 
I'm sorry, if I don't know exactly how I feel about something in my life, how in the world is someone else supposed to tell me how I'm feeling? When I unburden myself during a time of great inner conflict, I start by giving voice to just one side of the problem. If the listener simply sits there attentively, patiently, lovingly, then what I'll eventually do is explore that other side of the of the problem in a way that often contradicts myself or it'll seem like I'm arguing with myself. But really what I'm doing is I'm just give, voicing uh, that that inner conflict. So giving voice to both sides of the inner conflict is a necessary part of the process. If I'm allowed to explore both sides of the conflict, then I'm very likely to eventually resolve them and be able to move on with my life. That's the goal. If the listener hears me talk about one side of the issue that's bothering me, interrupts me, agrees with me, tells me that just to go with it, to go with that initial feeling, then I'll never get to the other side of the issue. I'll enjoy feeling agreed with, for sure. But my inner conflict is going to continue because I was never able to give voice to the other part of the issue that bothers me. If I can't give voice to it, then I can't resolve it. I really think this part, this is part of what keeps so many angry people on ex-Mormon forums for years and years and years after they've left the church. They write something horrible, something nasty, something that's just been eating them up on the inside, and then everyone agrees with them. Strangely enough, what happens is, All that agreement keeps them from giving voice to the complex emotions that they're actually feeling. Unable to explore both sides of the issue, they continue in pain and conflict because their friends just agree with them too quickly. The word conflict comes from the Latin word confliere, which means to strike together. So think of a flint and an iron. You need to strike them together to get a spark. You need two sides of an issue that are both compelling in order to feel a real inner conflict. In other words, we only feel conflicted if deep down we see merit to two different arguments and we can't really figure out how to resolve that. If people are not able to really explore all sides of an internal conflict, then it doesn't matter that someone else agrees with just one side of that issue. The conflict will eventually resurface and the pain and discomfort will continue. Uh, Some of you may be thinking right now, come on, Ryan, are you really telling me to go talk to a therapist? My answer is, hmm, that might be a good idea. A therapist is trained not to judge you as a good person or a bad person, just to take you as you are. And uh, a therapist has a professional incentive to keep everything you say confidential. So a therapist might be a good option for you. And you should at least be open to working with one until you get past your crisis of faith. That said, there are therapists who don't know how to listen in the way that I've just described. They'll interrupt you, they'll tell you what you should or shouldn't think, and then they'll send you on your way. Maybe with a prescription of antidepressants. I don't know. The point is, not all therapists are good listeners. And what I'm suggesting here, what I'm telling you you need is a good listener, not necessarily a therapist. Uh, The good news is that you don't need to be a therapist to be a good listener. You don't need to be a therapist to refrain from passing judgment on someone. You don't need to be a therapist just to sit there and listen attentively to another person in a way that creates empathy. Empathy has a wonderfully... uh, healing effect on a conflicted soul. Empathy should not be confused with sympathy. They're both Greek words in origin. Sympathy literally means to suffer with another person. So the prefix um, from the Greek sin or sim in sympathy come, means with. So we see that in words like symbiotic. Sim with. Bio means life. So if something's symbiotic, it's, its life is in, intertwined with the life of another living being. 
We also see that word in synchronistic. A sin with chrono time. That means that uh, if something's synchronistic, it happens at the same time, right with something else, right? So if you have sympathy for me, you feel my pain as your own. That's the idea behind the word sympathy. Empathy literally means to suffer at or suffer in. That doesn't make much sense. So the idea behind the word empathy is that we experience what it is to be another person. It's very similar, but really what's going on is we're metaphorically walking a mile in their moccasins. When we feel sympathy, our initial reaction is to try and alleviate the other person's pain because their pain is our pain. When we feel empathy, we're simply trying to understand what it is to be another human being, good or bad. We don't try to alleviate or change what that person's feeling because we're experiencing it with the specific intent to understand from that person's point of view what it's like to be that person. So you don't change it when you're trying to understand it. You just experience it. That's what empathy is. And I'm not saying that sympathy is bad. All I'm saying is that a person who is feeling that intense inner conflict, which comes from a faith crisis, needs someone to listen with empathy, not sympathy. My wife has learned how to listen with empathy very well. When she creates that empathic experience for me, I feel safe to give voice to all sides of an inner conflict I'm experiencing. She stays attentive while listening, but doesn't interrupt the direct connection that eventually gets established between my heart and my mouth. This direct link between my heart and my mouth allows me to say what my heart is feeling without any censorship or filtering from my conscious mind. With some, em- with some empathic help, I'm finally able to express what I really feel. And as I hear myself put those feelings into words, only them, only then am I able to really understand what it is that's bothering me. Having someone listen to you when you're between an emotional rock and a hard place is an extreme, is an extremely liberating experience. I say that both as one who has experienced it and as one who has witnessed it in others. My friends, you need to seek out a good listener, whether it's your spouse, your bishop, your therapist, a trusted friend. Once you get all of that inner turmoil out in the open, you'll be amazed at how much better you feel. I've spoken a lot about what to look for in a good listener, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention two things you need, you need to do to take advantage of such a rare and special gift, because it is. Having someone listen to you in that way is rare and it's special. Firstly, you need to be brave. Be brave when you express your doubts. Be brave enough to express them. Be brave enough to question your most cherished beliefs. If that's what's in your heart, if that's what's bothering you, Be brave enough to admit that you're scared of what might happen if your doubts are confirmed. Be brave enough to be totally honest with yourself. Be brave enough to say whatever's in your heart and mind, regardless of whether or not you like what you hear, if it makes sense, if you're proud of it. doesn't matter. Just get it out. Be brave. The first step is for you just to get it all out. Secondly, you need to be patient. When someone finally gives you this gift of non-judgmental, empathic listening, don't be surprised if you talk for 45 minutes straight. This is an organic process, and it takes as long as it takes. You might need to have someone listen to you several times for that long. And don't be afraid of silence either. You may need to pause for a moment, maybe even for a whole minute in between your thoughts. Be patient. Don't be embarrassed. 
Pouring out our souls is very often a necessary part of healing them. A high councilman of my stake told us a story in our ward a couple of weeks ago about how he broke his neck. Now, he's recovered almost entirely, but he needed to walk around with a really big neck brace for about a year as part of his treatment. There was a period when he was able to take off the neck brace, but still had some gross motor skill impairments. So he'd bump into things, and he'd have a hard time with uh, certain easy, everyday tasks. He said that when he wore the brace, people were patient with him. It was easy to see what his problem was and why he was having a hard time doing easy things. But when he took the brace off, uh, people got confused. They didn't know what the problem was. Uh, they thought maybe he was just being careless or stupid. You know, they, they made assumptions and they were less patient with him. My friends, I'm sure that there are some of you who have said, there's no way I'm going to do this. I don't have time for any of this. I'm not going to make these changes to my diet. I don't have time for exercise. Ryan, don't you understand how busy I am? Don't you understand how much I have to do? You, know, you got a point. I don't know you personally. Uh, I don't know what your particular challenges are. I don't know how exactly how difficult it will be for you to start eating right, exercising regularly, managing your stress, and to find a good listener. You're right. I don't know. What I do know is this. If you are going through a crisis of faith, you're in pain. You're going through something horrible, and something painful. It's something that haunts you. It's something that haunts you at times in your life that used to be happy and reassuring. It's like a black rain cloud that hovers over you. You might be able to forget that it's there, but sooner or later you'll remember, and uh, remembering will dishearten you. I also know that every single one of the suggestions that I've made can help you alleviate that pain. Every single one. They work for others, and they'll work for you. And that's why I've taken the time to put together this podcast. If you take good care of yourself, if you eat right, if you exercise regularly, if you manage your stress, if you find a good listener to speak to, that's all going to help a lot. But uh, it's not going to be enough on its own to help you become a healthy, independent, thinking stage four believer who can live in peace and harmony with uh, other people whose belief is at a different stage than yours. Getting yourself healthy is a good beginning. But it's only the beginning. There are a few more steps you can take that you need to take. And in the next four episodes of this series, we'll explore what else you can do to develop your faith in a way that will be meaningful to you and to others. Until then, may the Lord warm your shoulders. Amidst lovers first morning As the birds tried out their wings Somewhere quiet mortal Adam slept until he heard them sing. Breath of dust and he's awaking, gazing up to heaven's home. Now with Eve this garden Eden is the place they call their own. They awoke in the garden, and the leaves were wet with dew. What they knew had changed forever in the garden where they grew. In the prime of Earth's meridian, 
On a night so clear and deep, bowed our Savior meekly suffering, while disciples lay asleep. Abba, Father, take this cup, please. Still submissive was his plea. Paid our ransom in the garden, garden of Gethsemane. They awoke in the garden, and the leaves were wet with blood. What they knew had changed forever, Lamb of God now understood. In the tide of earthly morning, as the earthquakes rent the ground, Mary knelt in solemn sorrow, for her Lord nowhere was found. Oh, familiar was the voice then, breaking through death's awful gloom. And he stood there resurrected, Easter morning garden tomb. He awoke in the garden, and the leaves were wet with tears. What we know has changed forever, for with him we will be heirs. But a darkness closed the lights fall, and a famine swept the land. Who is right? How shall we know it? Great excitement and demand. And the time was 1820, morning breaks in light above. Joseph's humble prayer was answered in Palmyra's sacred grove. The world awoke in the garden, and the leaves were turning green. What we know has changed forever, and the powers of heaven seem. In the twilight of earth's history, at the dawning of the day, we are called to gather Israel, till the line with lamps shall lay. Hush the world and still the sobbings, let the earth receive her King. For that day we have been promised, with the angels we will sing. We'll awake in the garden, when the leaves are wet with rain. There on Adam on Diamond, when the Savior comes again.